Hello and welcome to The Comeover, a podcast from The Combination, a show about politics made in Northern Ireland but not necessarily about Northern Ireland. My name's Morris McCartney and I'll be getting together with activists and scholars and combing over issues of sustainability, equality, grassroots democracy and whatever else comes up in conversation. In this episode, we look at the news stories that were big or breaking at the beginning of 2020. Brexit, Donald Trump and the climate crisis. If Eric Hobsbawm could describe centuries as long or short, perhaps we could say that we've just emerged from a long decade, arguably starting in 2008 with the global financial crash and ending with a whole string of right-wing populist strongmen in power across the world. We've got Donald Trump in the White House, Bolsonaro in Brazil, Modi just re-elected in India and Boris Johnson winning a substantial mandate for the Tories in the UK. The financial crash coming on top of a 2007 IPCC report that warned of imminent climate chaos should have been the moment we all realised our dominant political economic model was broken beyond repair. We just couldn't afford to keep cranking wealth to a few at the top by pressing down on the poor on the one hand and the living planet on the other. Yet, here we are, the demagogues ascendant, inequality deepening, greenhouse gas emissions rising, and the crank being turned faster than ever. In the UK, we are about to be led out of Europe and into a new decade by the same party that instigated grinding austerity, that oversaw worsening inequality and that stood inert before the unfolding climate crisis. How has this happened? What challenges does it pose for the future? That's what I joined my combination colleague Stephen Baker at his kitchen table to address. Morris, you mentioned in your introduction, um, you mentioned demagogues and you've mentioned also the 2007 IPCC report um, into global warming. I mean, we have two quite uh, spectacular um, illustrations of just how serious those issues are, one with America's behaviour in the uh, Middle East and also the images that are coming uh, to us from Australia at the moment. Um, what are your thoughts on that at the moment? Yeah, well, to, to take them in reverse order, um, because the thing in the Middle East is only just, the news is only just broken, so it's kind of hard to uh, process that at the minute. Um, I suppose between us thinking about doing this podcast and today, the images coming out of Australia have been I think, you know, apocalyptic. There's no other word yeah, for it. Yeah, that it, it, it is shocking to see. And in particular, there was one image of uh, all the the people, the neighbours, they're, they're with their children, with their animals even, all on a beach under a, a sky, the colour of diluted blood, with their backs to the sea, watching the flames getting nearer. And it struck me that First of all, it was just horrific to see that in the first place and the, the terrified children and so on. But it struck me that it, it actually stands as a, as a symbol of, of, in one way, where we all are. Because, uh, you know, I mentioned the 2007 IPCC report. We've had other reports since then. Increasing numbers of reports from different bodies. And all of them concur that this crisis is unfolding right now and it's unfolding faster than people used to predict and in a sense we're all on that beach 
with our backs to the sea and the flames are getting near all of us. And the thing about it is, I mean, the, the report you refer to comes out in 2007 and it kind of coincides with the, the economic crisis as well. Mm-hmm. And you kind of look back at what you refer to as that kind of long decade. It feels like a decade of just inertia in many ways. Um, and it's, it's, it's brought us to this point with regards to uh, what's happening in Australia. And I, I kind of suspect that, you know, we're being, we're shocked and alarmed by what we're sort of seeing coming out of Australia because Australia is a sort of country um, which is, is uh, probably very well documented and we have relatives there and um, we'll, we'll know people fr- from Australia. I suspect that maybe people all over the world where we don't very often see them have been confronted with um, very similar dreadful circumstances when we just haven't been made, just haven't mm. been aware of it. I mean, I was flicking through my tw- uh, Facebook feed and Twitter feed and looking at some of the images coming up, and I was reminded a little bit of, of um, 9-11 and the kind of first reaction to 9-11 where you kind of had to do the sort of double take and try to think, but is this real? Or is this some kind of sci-fi genre that I'm, that I'm watching? Because that's what the images um, kind of look like. Um, and, you know, I, I think it'll be interesting to sort of see how those images, this story, what the events that are unfolding in Australia, how that frames the conversation about um, climate change in the future because really the political inertia around this is pretty unforgivable. Indeed, and of course it's not just inertia over the, the last year or so. It goes right back to the beginning. I mean, the, the warnings on, on climate change, well, in fact, the science goes back to the 19th century. Yeah. That's undisputed. Even the oil companies themselves started to discover their own scientists produce reports saying, look, there's going to be climate change coming if we keep burning mm-hmm. fossil fuels. And they, the companies decided not to address that problem, but to cover it up and try to, to put out disinformation. And to some extent, it's maybe something we want to talk about a bit later. It's about the role of the media. It's about, you know, because we're seeing these images yeah. coming out now that are apocalyptic and people are getting shocked and people are taking to the streets. In one sense, a lot of the media reports over the years have led us to this kind of sense of, well, it's just something that's going to eventually happen and it's going to happen over there somewhere where yeah. it doesn't really matter to us because we want to keep on with living our own lifestyles. So it's, there's some media role in here as well. So maybe... And, I mean, it's interesting talking about how you frame these things. You know, it, it, you know the, what the events in Australia coincide with two other interesting events, which one is the impeachment of, um, of Trump and, uh, and then, by some coincidence, the assassination of... Um, an Iranian, yeah, an Iranian commander. Um, you know, which I'm, I'm sure you know, it's an assassination in the Middle East, which is a place where there's sort of strategic interests because of uh, the oil reserves there. Um, and it's hard not to sort of think that these things all might be linked up in some yeah. way, but very often the way in which they're presented to you in the news, and we will talk a little bit about the media, as you say, later on, but, you know, they're very often presented to you as discrete things. You know, so you know, events in the world just appear to be one damn thing after another, mm-hmm. as opposed to things which are, are, are kind of related. Um, but there is a relationship there, and it's probably something we, we, need, to, we need to sort of think about an awful lot, uh, a lot harder than we have perhaps in the past. Indeed, but I suppose the other thing, a bit closer to home, that we had been thinking about talking about was the B word, Brexit. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, that goes back to, doesn't it, the, back to this 2007 crash. This is a long decade, you know. Yeah. The financial uh, system crashes because of the deregulated private finance industry creating 
crazy but profitable uh, credit schemes and a whole bunch of people at the lower end of the income scale being unable to house themselves except by buying into those crazy schemes even though they didn't know that's what they were doing at the time um, so it seems to me that that kind of those economic mechanisms that cranked up the inequality uh, were what led to the crash in the first place and then the, the conservatives seized the story and said oh look at that terrible crash oh what a terrible government the Labour government was and blamed it on the government the previous government and said oh it's all about overspending public overspending we can't afford it we have to we have to live within our means we're all in this together and then they used the um, opportunity that the crash presented to roll out a, a series of cuts that they were longing to do anyway because their whole ethos is shrink the state and expand the private sector and it's remarkable that the most you know persuasive seemingly persuasive um, uh, analysis of that crash was uh, uh, the domestic mismanagement of the economy by labor and that somehow that was allowed to become the story of it You've got to, I mean, as you say, you've got to look at some sort of stage and sort of think, how was public debate so impoverished that that's how that became interpreted? And in many respects, you kind of look at the, the kind of political consequences of that ill-informed uh, conversation, and you know they've been they've been they've been pretty extraordinary. I mean, it's been an extraordinary decade. I mean, another thing too, of course, you mentioned it. Um, is, is is Brexit, um, which, as I say, you know, despite what Johnson said about getting Brexit done, I, I suspect that the, the the sort of aftershocks of Brexit are something we are going to have to live with for quite some time. Um, one of which is, I think, is I think we're looking if we're looking into the future, I think we have to say that uh, a Scottish independence referendum looks like something which is realistic. And I also think that we have to contemplate the idea that there may be a border poll here at some stage um, in, in Ireland. And those things, I think, you know, in many ways are attributable to the kind of constitutional disruption that, 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 that Brexit has brought about. And I think the other thing, too, is, you know, Brexit also, I think, represents a moment of, of English national self-determination and uh, you know, and the English, I think, are as entitled to their sense of national identity as anybody else is. But one of the things we're going to have to sort of think about within the United Kingdom is how you live with a more assertive uh, English identity, a more assertive version of English nationalism, perhaps, than we have encountered before. Because Englishness was, Englishness was always very able to sort of assume it was British in some way, and, and that kind of helped us all uh, muddle along. So the questions that, that English nationalism and a more assertive version of English national identity are going to beg of Scotland and Northern Ireland and Wales, I think are going to be, uh, are going to come very, very fast um, to us. Um, and I think, you know, I think we're probably looking at a Scottish independence referendum sometime in the very near future. Um, and already there's a debate has opened up here, whether people like it or not, about the, um, about the Irish border. And you can begin to sort of see work being done there around questions of what a, a, an island economy would look like, what the economy would look like in the United Ireland. So you've got people like Tom um, Haley's book, um, An Ireland Worth Working For, and Paul Gosling has written a, um, a, a book as well called A New Ireland, A Ten-Year Plan. And they're beginning to look at the economics of this here. You know, and, and I, I don't doubt for a moment that if there is a debate about, about the Irish border, uh, the border in Ireland, um, it'll be one which will, economics will figure very, very prominently in. I don't think it'll, it'll be the sectarian headcount 
well, there will be an element of sectarian headcount around a border poll. That's undoubtedly true. Um, but I think anybody who assumes that a border poll is only going to be a sectarian headcount will very badly misjudge the conversation that's going to take place. You can already, as I say, see the kind of economic arguments begin to emerge. But I think one of the other key arguments that will emerge at this stage is, a, is, is around a constituency in uh, the North who are not persuaded any longer by sort of sectarian arguments or appeals to ethnic identity. They'll be more interested in the economic arguments, they'll be more interested in civic arguments, and I think one of the key arguments at this stage will be around questions of the imbalances of political power in the UK. You know, if you're in Scotland in a population of 5.4 million people, in, within a, in a broader political formation, which is the UK, of, 60, of 66.4 million people, you know, you can immediately see the power imbalance that's at, that's at work there. I mean, if you're in, in Northern Ireland, one of the things you may want to think about is how much power this region can exert as a region of 1.8 million people. If it's in the United Kingdom, would it have more power, more influence, more say, a better, a greater political voice if it was in the United Ireland of 6.6 million people? So I think this question of politics is going to be really important around that issue of the border poll and political power. And in a sense, people might sort of in Scotland and Northern Ireland decide that, well, you know, um, they want to take back control. You know, it was important in, in the debate around Brexit. I think sometimes we underestimate just how important questions of political sovereignty are to people. I think it'll be important in that respect. And if you look at the election that we've just been through, if you're living somewhere like Northern Ireland or you're living in Scotland, the only question that really mattered in that election was, does getting Brexit done matter more to English voters than the National Health Service, than uh, climate change and the union itself? And the answer was, yeah, getting Brexit done mattered more than those things. Now, if that isn't your priority, you know, and Scotland and Northern Ireland voted their majorities for Remain, mm -hmm. that begs very serious questions about sovereignty and political representation and our democratic voice in these regions. Yeah. Do, you know, do you know what we could do? Actually, we, we, could, uh, we could build a bridge between Northern Ireland and Scotland. How would that? We could, that would be... Well, and we could all, you know, throw our weight in with them. And, I think that's an exciting. I, I might be the only person who thinks a bridge is a great idea. <laughs> I actually seen online that somebody has come up. You can actually build floating bridges, oh, which yes, means you yes. don't have to deal with the hazards of, you know, uh, old arsenals of weapons that are lying apparently down there in the channel somewhere. But the other thing about this is, I mean, there's a kind of fantasy around this, isn't there? Because really, if you were Boris Johnson and somebody sort of said, will you build a bridge between Northern Ireland and Scotland? You know, would you seriously do that, given the fact that you may have referendums in those two constituencies in the near future, yes. and you've just built them a bridge and they'll piss off? Yep. No, no, I can't see that happening. Maybe not. Maybe that would be a, a bit of a, a distraction in itself. I suppose the, you're talking about the sort of um, the economics of Brexit and the kind of the social and the issues to do with um, you know self uh, taking back control and all the rest of it. I guess you know back in 2016, I campaigned uh, to on the Remain side because I thought it was best for the people of Northern Ireland. I thought it was also best for Europe as a whole because it seems to me there's we're going to need you know international alliances and and, and we're going to need to set them up in such a way that we can address these international problems, but. Here we are. It's a done deal. The, that ship has sailed and Boris Johnson's at the helm. So um, that's, you know, we've, we've kind of lost out on that one, right? We've lost the vote. We've lost it in 2016. We've just lost it in 2019. Where do we, as people of the left, of, of where do progressives go from here? 
I mean, personally, I think we need to get a call out and say, look, let's stop arguing about all that, that stuff. Yes, actually, the, a lot of the people in the north of England who, and a lot of them had probably perfectly genuine reasons for wanting to get out of, out of uh, Europe. A lot of leftists wanted to get out of Europe because they said, look, it's a, it's a, it's a boss's club, as I heard some people saying. It's, um, it's gone down a committed neoliberal route. We need to get out and... Um, you know, my only problem with that argument was that there was no left exit on stage. There was only a right exit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, but the thing is, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm the guy who didn't vote, didn't, didn't campaign uh, for Remain because, I, you know, I didn't really have that. I'm not that big an enthusiast of the EU, but I voted for Remain on the basis that on two re- for two reasons. One, I wasn't going to be led out of Europe by the right, and it looked to me like a, a, a project that was driven by the right. And two, I kind of thought you know, it would destabilise the kind of political settlement that we had here. You know, that settlement depended upon ideas of, you know, a more relaxed approach to sovereignty and it relied also on a more porous uh, idea around sort of borders. And it was very, very clear that Brexit wasn't about those things. Brexit was going to harden borders. Brexit was about taking back control and it was about sovereignty. So, I, I you know, I, I voted Remain but not with any particular enthusiasm. I think what's interesting, though, is you begin to sort of look forward and think what we'll do in the future as, as, a, as, as the left. You know, one of our problems is, you know, it, it looks like, on the one hand, as we come out of this kind of union, you know, which we all, which, you know, many on the left and, and, and in the centre sort of said they wanted to stay part of for reasons that, you know, being part of a larger union, it was easier to sort of have a greater economic impact. And if you want to tackle climate change, you need that sort of sense of horizontal comradeship between unions, uh, between nations. But it seems that, you know, in a way, that kind of disintegration of unions is something which in all likelihood is, is just going to continue again with um, the breakup of the United Kingdom. You know, and in, in many respects, if you're in Scotland, you know, and you're looking for a political voice, actually the best option for you might be to, you know, to break with rule from Westminster. I mean, look at for how long Scotland has voted for um, centre-left governments and still ends up being governed from, from London by, um, by, by Tories and by people on the right. I mean, if democratic... If democracy is going to work at all, then maybe it has to be devolved, it has to be pushed down, it has to be got as close to people as possible before you can begin to ask people to start to form those kind of horizontal relationships of comradeship, which are going to tackle things like inequality and um, uh, and climate change, because they're not going to be done by bureaucratic institutions which just seem to be utterly unresponsive to the people they assume to represent. So maybe we are going to see a period of kind of fragmentation, um, but maybe it's necessary to get us to a place where people feel that their political voices are being heard, because it's only when your voice is being heard that it's capable, you're, you're able to begin to uh, communicate with other people and form alliances with them and begin to organise around those kind of issues, which we've talked about for so long. In terms of future of democracy, yeah, maybe we need to go uh, down to a, a lower level, getting to, at the grassroots and giving power back to the ordinary people, the working people, the majority of people. Um, because if you don't, if we haven't done that, then then we haven't either taken back control or, or we haven't got democracy. And it seems to me that that is something that we, on the you know the progressive movement in the left, we need to do. So those two things that, that i.e. the the to face up to the the growing. Um, climate crisis that's unfolding in front of our eyes 
and to face up to the fact that the, the same forces that have unleashed that are the forces that have created the gig economy, have created the precariat, have mm -hmm. created um, zero-hour contracts, have created offshoring, have created tax havens, which should probably be called tax voids or something, you know, a bit more you know, scary-sounding than haven. Haven's a wee bit fluffy, you know. Um, we need to, if we're going to take back control, we need to get, get back control of those things. And to do that, we need to get grassroots democracy going. We need to get the unions back up and running. We need to campaign for um, cooperatives, campaign for workers on, on boards as a matter of course. You know. I mean, that, this is the thing, is I mean, you mentioned the idea of workplace democracy, which, you know, in, in some respects, well, it's, a, it's a very thing which the right will throw its hands up and alarm. Uh, I mean, Theresa May played with the idea and then quickly kind of dropped it. I think the idea of putting um, uh, workers on the boards and stuff like that. But, you know, this kind of notion, and again, this is one of the, 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 the reservations that I have um, about... Uh, uh, national forms of self-determination. It's this kind of assumption that that in itself will be sufficient to democratise your life, to give you the, the opportunity to find a political voice. You know, the, the notion that, that, that people who live in a region like Northern Ireland or live in somewhere like, like Scotland all share the same economic interests uh, is just, just nonsense. There are things that you kind of... If you want to take back control in, in an area, I want to take back control in my working life as well as in the region and the town and the county that I live. That's an important uh, sphere of my life as well. At the moment, democracy doesn't really speak to that at all. So, I mean, I think that that, that debate about democracy is one which is going to be, uh, has to be a much more um, fulsome one than one which is sort of simply grounded always in terms of national self-determination and stuff like that. Yep, and I, I, I think that there are, despite the fact that we've kind of talked about a lot of quite gloomy news and, and uh, so forth, there's... There's some signs that there are, well, the positive signs for me, and th this sort of analysis has started to be aired. This, so these sort of ideas have been, uh, have got a momentum all of a sudden. I mean, with, with Extinction Rebellion and the school strikes. Yeah. And Sharon, and, uh, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know uh, people like that. And indeed, people like Bernie Sanders and AOC in America. Mm -hmm. Jeremy Corbyn, uh, you you know like him or, or loathe him, find fault with him. That's great. Um, but the one thing he did do was he was able to allow people to voice ideas that had been written out of the script for decades. Any idea that you know, for example, nationalisation or anything to do with putting workers on boards or mm -hmm. uh, employee ownership, all the, these sorts of issues, they were written out of the script. They were they were laughed out of court for decades. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and the thing about that is, though, I mean, and this probably takes us on to the, the next thing we, we, we kept promising we we're going to talk about here at some stage was around sort of things like the media. This sort of question for where the, how those things fit into a national debate is really interesting because they, the, you know, the, I think there's two shocks are kind of delivered to um, the British body politic. One is Brexit and the other one is the election of Corbyn. And suddenly we have a national conversation opens up which is about things like nationalisation and imperialism and things which you know the British media and um, the guardians of the public sphere just didn't want to encounter before. They didn't want to talk about you know, but even though you were allowed to talk about them, and even though you're allowed to talk about them now, or you can get them into the, the public sphere in places like America, they do tend to be set up like Aunt Sally's at a fairground, which are just there to be kind of knocked, up, knocked down in the kind of dominant flow of opinion. 
how do you be, I mean, if, we're, if, if you're going to sort of develop a kind of grassroots form of democracy, if you're going to invigorate democracy again, and God knows it's an awful state at the moment, then that has to be about the sort of standard of the public debate that we have. It has to be about the quality of the conversations that we have with each other. And at the moment, I think there are two areas which really need attention. One is education. And the other is the media, because the two, those two spheres are absolutely, those two sectors are absolutely integral to the cultural life uh, that we lead. And culture is intimately lim- linked to the quality of our democracies. The marketization of education has been disastrous uh, in, a, in a democratic sense. You know, we began to sort of see higher education in particular start to behave like it was a kind of adjunct of industry, that its purpose was purely economic. And it forgot that it had any sort of civic responsibilities or political responsibilities. Now, I don't want to sort of suggest that universities were ever beacons of, of, of civic leadership, but that's what they should have been aspiring towards instead of becoming sort of simply tools of, of economic regeneration, apparently, which they, they, they palpably failed at. Um, so that has been, been disastrous, I sort of think. The sort of shrinking of things like the arts, humanities and social sciences um, at the very moment when you need those kind of subjects, when you need that kind of analysis, you need that kind of inquiry for healthy democracy. And also the state of the media uh, um, not just in, in the UK, but across the world. It's concentration, the ownership concentrated in the hands of, of the very, very wealthy. And the very obvious failures of the BBC as a public service broadcaster, which, you know, have been, I think, really illuminated in the last election. Now, it's not that I don't think that the BBC isn't rescuable. And it's not that I don't think... Uh, it's not that I think that public service broadcasting is dead. I think public service, the idea of public service in the media is something that, as an ethos, still has legs. But whether the BBC will still be a public service broadcaster in the near future, I think is a little bit harder to determine. Mm. Um, I think, you know, we've already sort of seen um, a shot fired across its bows by the new Boris Johnson uh, government where they're talking about decriminalising. Um, non-payment of license fees. Um, there's been a um, you know a kind of a survey done recently by an organisation called Public First, which polled a thousand people and found that a third would be happy to see. Actually, I think three quarters would be happy to see the license fee ab- abolished. I think the BBC's problem at the moment is not that it is being attacked by the right. It's always been attacked by the right for one reason or another. They're hostile to that kind of model. Um, of an organisation which is you know, public in that sense. Um, I think the BBC's real problem is that it's beginning to lose that constituency which form its natural allies who believe in public service because if they don't see the BBC fulfilling that role, why would they support mm. it and why would they want to pay their licence? And I think the BBC has, has got to stop acting defensively as it has done recently in the face of this criticism and has to open itself up to a conversation about what is its democratic role going to be um, in a political environment which offers very new challenges around sort of things like the disintegration of the, the, uh, the UK, you know, the constituency to which it broadcasts. How does it respond to a world where social media um, is a great deal more prominent? Because we've seen how slow it was to re- respond to something like, like climate change. I mean, it was still giving voice to climate change deniers you know, um, in, the in, 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 in the quest for balance and impartiality, when it was very, very clear that these people were sort of simply funded um, by uh, 
the fossil fuel industry and their contribution to the debate was simply there to sort of muddy the waters and to hold up the public conversation that needed to be had about climate change. The BBC has to do better and it has to have a conversation about what its democratic role is going to be in these difficult circumstances. Otherwise, it's its usefulness is limited. I suppose the other side of the coin is the privately owned uh, media, the old traditional media, the newspapers owned by billionaires, yeah. edited by millionaires, mm. uh, and uh, to a large extent pumping out the same kind of stories, uh, which are, are basically, you know, uh, that, that's what stoked the xenophobia of recent years. It's, it's, it frames everything in terms of um, oh, don't let the government take your money to give to the scroungers. You know, it's done everything it can. The billionaire-owned and millionaire-edited media has done everything it can to divide us. That ninety-nine percent of us from each other, according to our denomination, or our, our ethnicity, or you know, immigrant status, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that, to me, is the one thing that we have to overcome if we think of ourselves as progressives. If we think of ourselves as on the left, let's set our differences aside and concentrate on, on not letting them divide us and bringing our strength together and, and getting on with this. Because if, we, if we're up against those sort of right-wing outlets and even the BBC is sort of letting us down at the minute, then the only thing that's left to us is to do it ourselves by connecting with each other and combining our strengths. Well, you know, again, I think there's, as I said, I don't think that public service ethos goes away. Um, even if the BBC aren't fit to fulfil it. Um, and as you say, I think, you know, I think there's a conversation now that needs to open up about people who are involved in what are sometimes seen as alternative forms of media or broadcasting from the left and stuff like that. Um, maybe maybe that, 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 needs, that conversation needs to take place very, very quickly. And maybe that's a topic for another time. Maybe it is. Thank you very much, Stephen. Cheers, Morris. Cheers. <laughs>